Welcome to Sunday Sermons from Trinity UMC in Lincoln, a podcast to help on the faith journey. Now on to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Slater. Well, this is the second week in the series called Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope, and it's about fear. Now, this series was first put together by Church of the Resurrection and Adam Hamilton, and I, uh, I'm thankful for that because there's a lot of research that goes into this one, and because of uh, their help, I'm able to share some of that research with you because I think it speaks to our present moment uh, very deeply. Uh, this, uh, all of us live with more fear than we like to admit, but especially right now during a pandemic and with uh, everything going on politically in the world, there is much to be afraid of. And it helps not only to understand our fear better, but to look for God's place in it because that's what's truly transformative. Now, Adam Hamilton wrote a book that goes along with it too, as he often does. Uh, And uh, last week, somebody had the idea that we could order some as a church what we discovered is that they're selling out, (laughs) that they're a little difficult to find, which says something about the level of fear in our world right now, doesn't it? We did manage to get our hands on eight of them, however, and uh, we we, um, have a few of those already spoken for, but we do have a few left. So if any of you would like a copy of it, uh, let us know. And uh, if we have any left here, uh, you're certainly welcome to one of those. Now, Today we're going to start off with what was the greatest fear for people under 50. Now this comes from a survey, that's why I say people under 50. Now the survey shows its age in our present moment. Uh, it's not that old, it was actually a, sermon, uh, a, a survey that was done in early 2016. So uh, only uh, uh, four and a half years old, uh, yet it was before uh, uh, President Trump was elected and, before we, uh, uh, um, uh, and certainly before we found the level of political turmoil that we experienced in this election, and of course it was before the pandemic. If you took that survey now, I have a hunch that people would say their greatest fears are related to those two things. But before them, the greatest fear reported by people under 50 was fear of failure. And a close second was a fear of rejection. Now that seems pretty related to me, doesn't it? Fear of rejection is, uh, is very similar to a feel, fear of failure. Uh, it just has a little more to do with the relationship side of failing. Uh, And I will tell you, fear of failure is something that all of us feel uh, at one time or another, especially when we're young, but I think no matter where we are, are in life. And in part, it's a fear of looking foolish. Now, psychology has a history of talking about tapes in your head, and a lot of that comes from, uh, you know, the uh, mid-20th century when cassette tapes uh, were booming technology. Now it might be better to say samples or loops that play in our heads. And the idea is that there are little recordings in our head that play over and over, especially when they're triggered by something. I'll give you an example from myself that's probably still true, but not one I've thought about for a while, and that was jazz improvisation. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a musical family. My dad is a jazz trombonist who is very, very good. Uh, and, um, uh, well, they didn't, uh, there was no pressure on me to be good, but I put lots of pressure on me to be good, especially growing up around so many good musicians, my dad and his friends as well. You know, how could I measure up? You know, how, you, you can forget, you can understand how a boy might think that, right? 
And so I tried to play an improvised solo a little bit once. I remember this, and it sounded awful, of course. Nobody's good the first time they try it. You know, it's the kind of thing that you can only try with other people. You can't really practice it on your own. And I tried it, and I didn't like how I sound because I also had very high standards, and it felt bad. I was embarrassed, and that's not a good feeling. And so all through high school and college, they would always say, well, Jeff, why don't you take a solo? And I'd remember that time that I was embarrassed and how bad it felt. You know, that's that tape, that sample playing back in my head. And it was saying, don't do it. It won't be good enough. Now, of course, you have to do it. That's the only way to learn. But I still remember how that felt. And if you asked me to play a jazz solo right now, I'll bet that tape would start playing again. Now, we can all think of things like this, can't we? This is a family worship Sunday, so kids uh, that are watching, uh, you know, maybe for you it's thinking about not doing well on a test, or maybe you don't want to look, uh, look foolish or look bad in front of your friends at school uh, by doing something wrong. You know, some people even have dreams of uh, showing up and forgetting to put their pants on, or, you know, something silly like that. But that's a, a, a fear of looking foolish, right? And, and I think many of us as kids had that fear with P.E., physical education. I know I did because I wasn't very physical and I could never do as well as everyone else. Now for grown-ups, it's sometimes fear of failure professionally or fear of failure in relationship, especially in marriage. I think that's a fear uh, uh, of not doing well in marriage that we don't admit to often enough. You know, I still get a little nervous as a manager. You know, that's a new thing for me, and uh, there are no classes in seminary that teach you how to do HR and how to be a good boss. Uh, and that's something that I still have fear with, uh, especially when it affects other people's lives. You know, last week I talked about an early warning mechanism that our brains have. And in part, it's the amygdala. You know, that's the part of our brain that reacts even before the logical thinking part of the brain. It's like an instinctual response. And it's a gift from God. If we were face to face with a lion, we would be very grateful for our amygdala. Amygdalas? Amygdalae? Amygdala? I don't know. <laughs> We'd be grateful for them, right? Because even before we had a chance to register that there's a lion in front of us, our amygdala would already have the adrenaline pumping. It would already have our muscles tensing up and ready to go so that we could run away from that lion just as fast as possible. That's a real gift. The problem is that sometimes it goes off even when we don't want it to, even when it shouldn't, even when it's not a lion that's in front of us. But we also use our imagination to think about threats and to avoid them as they come. Now, last week, we talked about threats to our body and that kind of fear you know, a good place to start. And if that speaks to you I, and you missed it, I hope you'll go back and listen. But here's the thing. Our, we also, our brains also look for threats that could hurt us here. They look for threats that could hurt us emotionally, that could hurt our ego. And you know, sometimes the harm that happens here is worse than any harm we ever feel in our body. You know, you remember the time perhaps that the other kids teased you and made you feel small. Maybe you remember the time that your mom or dad said they were disappointed in you and you can't get that tape to stop playing in your head. You know, there's that phrase, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never harm me. That is just wrong, isn't it? In fact, that phrase itself is a defense mechanism because we've been hurt before. The truth is words can hurt us even worse than sticks and stones or at least the same. And so our brains look for threats that could harm us again. But that part of the brain isn't supposed to operate on its own. 
Our logical minds are supposed to be there too, reminding us that risk is part of life and so is failure. So talking about risk, here's an example. I uh, love to go to Colorado. My in-laws live in the Denver area, Rocky Mountain National Park I've talked about before. Manitou Springs is our honeymoon. I know a lot of you uh, go on trips to Colorado. If you have, have you seen this sign or one like it? Falling rock, right? Watch out for falling rock. Sometimes it's a little diagram of a, of a slope and a rock coming down it. Uh, and we, we've all seen those. And, uh, you know, but you, you ever think about it? Like, what is that like? Is it talking about like some gravel could come down and, and, and you lose traction on those mountain roads? Well, maybe. Is there a chance that like a big boulder could come down? I, I found this one online. <laughs> now, I'll tell you. The reason that's funny is because that really never happens except for that one time. You know, if there was a danger of falling rocks quite that big, they'd close the road, right? Really, when, you, when it comes to watch out for falling rocks, the risk is actually very small. Now, those of you who go to Colorado, if, whenever you see those watch out for falling rock signs, do you turn around and drive back to Nebraska? Of course not. You know that the risk is small and that if you, if you didn't go through anyway, maybe you watch more closely, but if you didn't go through, you would miss some of the most beautiful sights that our country has to offer. You know, we take small risks all the time. Driving in a car is, um, I believe, the most likely way to die in America, yet we do it all the time. You know, we wear seat belts, we, we don't drive drunk, we do these things uh, to, to uh, lower the risk even more, but we're okay with it because we know the risk is quite low and the reward is worth the risk. Now, it's important to realize that we are going to fail sometimes, no, I'm, I'm hopefully not in driving, I hope everyone's careful, but you know, there are gonna be times when we look foolish, when we stick our neck out. There are times we're gonna hurt ourselves and possibly others when we, when we take risks and people might even make fun of us and say harmful words. But risk is also part of life. You know, I'm a baseball fan and you think about batters. If they get a hit a third of the time, that's considered good. Let me say that the other way around. It's considered good if they only fail two thirds of the time. You know, you also think about uh, Michael Jordan, you know, perhaps the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Uh, and he did a commercial for Nike where he says this. He says that he missed 9,000 shots in his career, 9,000 shots. He lost 300 games, <coughs> excuse me, and 26 times, 26 times, the score was even or almost even, and they passed the ball to him, to Michael Jordan, to make the game-winning shot, the, the, the shot that was gonna make the difference between winning or losing. 26 times they passed it to him and he missed and they lost because of him, 26 times. Now, what would have happened to Michael Jordan if he'd listened to the tape that was playing in his head, being afraid to even take the shot? Yeah, you see my point, right? Well, there's the lesson from psychology, these tapes. But here's a lesson from faith. You know, Moses was perhaps the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament. Uh, he led the, uh, the Israelites through their time, out of slavery and through their time in the desert and right up to the edge of the promised land. Now, if you know his early story, you know he grew up in the palace. He was an Israelite, but he grew up in the palace uh, and uh, there was a time, probably when he was about 40, that he went out to see how the slaves were treated. 
And he realized that his people were being abused, were being treated very, very badly. You know, here he had this conflicting message of growing up in the palace, right? And in fact, he sees an Egyptian, Egyptian uh, uh, beating a slave. And Moses is so angry that he gets scared uh, and he kills him. He kills the Egyptian who's beating the slave. Now, this is like a fight or flight thing, right? At first, he's so angry and, uh, and fearful that he fights. But then once he's afraid of what's going to happen to him, he runs, he flees, and uh, for a, a very long time, for decades, he hides until eventually he comes across a bush that's burning and will not extinguish. Now, this is a great story in Exodus 3. I recommend that you read it. It's one of the ones they uh, made us translate when I was learning Hebrew a long time ago, and for good reason. Uh, Moses sees this great sight, and for two chapters he talks with God, and God gives him this call on his life. Here he is, probably 80 years old, and God gives him this new call, and he says, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh. Now, when it gets right down to it, these two chapters, Exodus 3 and 4, are pitiful. I mean pitiful. It's two whole chapters of Moses making excuses why he can't go. Uh, he's whiny, to be honest about it. Here it is, this great prophet, this bold prophet. Can you picture Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments with his staff and the parting of the Red Sea, right? He's nothing but whiny for two whole chapters. Uh, and he's giving God all these excuses why he can't do it. Like, for instance, he has a stutter. He has a speech impairment. And he says, God, you want me to go and be your voice? I can't even get a word out straight. And God says, yes, Moses, you're the one I want. Uh, and finally, Moses just says, please, Lord, just send somebody else. He's out of excuses. He doesn't even have another reason. He says, please just send somebody else. Now, I wonder if you have ever prayed that prayer, please just send somebody else. You know, maybe the church was looking for people to go on a mission trip and you thought to yourself, oh, I hope some other people sign up for that. It's the same prayer, right? Please just send somebody else. You know, maybe Patty was looking for somebody to teach Sunday school, uh, and, and you thought to yourself, oh, I hope somebody signs up for that, even though you felt a nudge on your heart. Or maybe we needed somebody to hand out candles on Christmas Eve, and you uh, once again thought, please send somebody else because I don't want to. Well, Moses says yes, eventually, of course. And because he did, the Hebrew people were saved. But I think the most important part of this story might be chapter 3, verse 12, when God says, I will be with you. Now, eventually, they go through the desert, they, they, you know, parting of the Red Sea, freeing of the slaves, all that, the desert. Uh, they get to the very edge of the promised land, and once again, there is fear, in part because that was the end of Moses' life. He leads them right up to the edge, and then he dies, and Joshua begins to take over. Everybody is afraid. In fact, they send spies, and, and, and what is it, like eight out of ten spies, something like that, say it's too dangerous. We can't do it. We can't go into the promised land. God has promised it's too dangerous. It's too risky. And all of a sudden, Joshua finds himself the new Moses. <laughs> you know, talk about hard shoes to fill. Uh, Joshua gets there, and he's afraid not only of entering the promised land, but even of leading the Israelites at all. And what God says to him is important enough. I want to put it up on the screen in nice big text. I, this is what God says to Joshua. I will be with you in the same way I was with Moses. I won't desert or leave you. 
I've commanded you to be brave and strong, haven't I? Don't be alarmed or terrified because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, one of my favorite ways to interpret the Bible is to remember that there's three, at least three ways to read any scripture. You can ask what it meant when it was first said. And in this case, it was said to Joshua. It was to encourage Joshua in his very real moment of fear, right? The second way you can read it is to ask when it was written down. Uh, and, it, and it just so happens that speaks to a moment of fear too. It's when the, uh, the Jews were in exile in Babylon and they were afraid they were going to lose their faith, that everything was going to be taken away from them and that these stories uh, were going to be forgotten, who the, that who they are as a people would be lost. And so they undoubtedly saw this as words of encouragement to them, that as they faced this time of fear, that God would be, would be with them just like God was with Moses, just like God was with Joshua. The third way you can read it is to ask what it means to us today. Now, if God said this to Joshua, just as he did to Moses, and if God said it to the Jews in exile, don't you think God says it to us today too? So I want you to close your eyes. Or, you know, I always have an attitude about that. You don't have to close your eyes, but close them if you want to. And think about what it is that you're afraid of. Now, kids, if you're still listening, I hope you think about the things that you're afraid of failing or looking foolish at too. Think about it and hear these words again. I will be with you, says God, in the same way I was with Moses. I won't desert or leave you. I've commanded you to be brave and strong, haven't I? Don't be alarmed or terrified because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. <laughs> that really speaks, doesn't it? Now, of course, this all depends on us doing what God wants us to do, right? If we're taking off on our own, doing things that we want to do uh, and not what God wants, well, maybe not so much. That's where prayer comes in. You know, have you ever noticed how often the Lord's Prayer says thy? It doesn't say my will be done, my kingdom come. No, it says God, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. And when we pray like that regularly, that's what helps keep us tethered to where God is calling us, what helps us to hear, what trains our souls to be in tune with where God is leading us. And as long as we do that, then the risks that we find for God's sake become good and healthy things. They become holy things. So in a moment, after we, uh, after we pray over the elements for communion, we're going to say the Lord's Prayer. And when we do, uh, well, you may have forgotten this moment by then, but I intend to emphasize those words, thy, because that's what keeps us connected. So are you playing it safe or are, or are you taking the good and holy risks? Because it's when you take those risks that you find yourself right smack dab in the middle of what God wants to do. And that is an awesome thing. Would you pray with me? Oh God, thank you. <laughs> thank you for the nausea. <laughs> thank you for the nausea you send our way sometimes when we know that you have called us to do something good, but we know that it's hard. Lord, help us to recognize that you are with us. Forgive us for those times when we have fallen short. Forgive us for those times when we have 
sought our will instead of yours. And please help us in this moment to turn. Help us to be connected to what you are doing in us and around us. And Lord, when you call us to leap, may we do it with the kind of courage and boldness that you asked of Moses and of Joshua and the same kind of opportunity you place before us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.